Hello and welcome to the Mining Stock Daily with me, Paul Harris. Today we're doing the, the Friday long-form interview and I'm very pleased to have Warren Erring, President and Chief Investment Officer of Rosso Asset Management with me today for this. Uh, good afternoon, Warren. Hey, Paul, how are you? I am very well, thank you. Hope you're enjoying the summer. Yeah, so far, so far, yeah. I just had a, a short little trip to Toronto and I'm back, uh, I'm back in British Columbia enjoying the beautiful BC weather. Are you getting out on any site visits uh, to Northern BC? Um, I have no plans right now, uh, but there are there are some interesting things happening in the in the mining sector around the around the world. Uh, so there is a chance uh, at some point I'll jump in a plane to Africa, and uh, and uh, perhaps uh, other other places which I won't you know tip my hand exactly right now. But there there are some exciting invite and exciting uh, things happening in the mining sector. Excellent. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, uh, time permitting. Uh, but I wanted to start um, with a, you know, perhaps a little bit more solemn note. Uh, Lucas Lundin, uh, the Lundin Group, passed away last night. You know, a real tour de force for the mining sector. Um, from your point of view, what, what, what did he mean to the sector, and what did he mean for investors? Well, i to me, uh, all, he was always a guy I looked up to. He's a fantastic, uh, fantastic entrepreneur, and. Uh, he and his brother, and uh, you know, obviously, were mentored by his his father, who did a fantastic job. Is um, if you want to read a good book about uh, Adolf uh, Lundin, his father, uh, no no guts, no glory. It's a classic. It's about his history, and he, you know, he was feast or famine, and uh, Lucas uh, Lucas grew up in that, and he learned right from the he was right front and center, involved in a lot of incredible deals, and. And the legacy for, for Lucas is not only that anybody who knows him knows what a fantastic person he was. He was a good, decent, uh, hardworking guy, a lot of fun. And um, he's uh, raised a number of uh, kids that are just fantastic. I, I know a number of them personally. I think they're going to be the next up and comers. And uh, they're, they're uh, children that... Uh, Lucas was always very proud of, and he should be, because they're fantastic kids. They've learned a lot from Lucas. Lucas spent a lot of time with them. And uh, I think they'll be ready to uh, set the world on fire. I completely agree with you there. I got the opportunity and the privilege to interview him on a number of occasions. I've been on site visits with him. Um, and that sort of humanity and that drive always struck me. Um, you know, very, very competitive person. And uh, um, lots of people have got anecdotes about him. And one that comes to my mind particularly is... Uh, um, you know, he, he was on uh, his super yacht with some analysts and uh, one of them bet him a thousand dollars. He couldn't water ski behind it. So, of course, he got the captain to rev up the engine. He water skied behind it and he won the bet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he was quite a wild man. That's for sure. I um, I traveled the world with him, too. I, I remember uh, times together in, in Argentina and in Venezuela and in Syria and in Egypt. So, and you know, I've obviously have met him in various other more civilized places over the years and uh, a very good guy, always up for an adventure. And um, I remember he, he was suggesting I should join him one day in a cross country motorcycle tour across uh, China. I think it was he and his brother were going and uh, I used to race cross country motorcycles. So I was definitely up for the challenge, but I just felt it was a bit, bit <laughs> bit of a bridge too far i just didn't want to be an ornament on the grill of a big chinese uh, truck coming around a blind corner but uh 
Lucas went on and did it. And as many people know, he, he used to race the Perry Dakar and, yeah. um, and he was definitely uh, living life to its fullest. I was speaking with the a friend of mine who also knew Lucas here the other day, and he was saying, uh, you know, Lucas has lived a life of 10 people, maybe 20 people. He's lived a, a fabulous life, everything from uh, incredible motorcycle races, cross-country races, raising a, a fabulous group of kids, um, you know, having the, the, one of the world's finest super yachts, uh, finding some of the world's most incredible uh, uh, mineral deposits. Uh, he definitely lived quite a life and he was a fantastic person. And, you know, a lot of people with, uh, who've had that much accomplishment would not be nearly as down to earth as Lucas was. And he was a down to earth and always, uh, always respectful to anyone, no matter who they were and what their status in life was and never disrespectful, ne never talking down to people, despite being a multi, multi billionaire with tremendous success and all the reasons to have an ego, but he, he didn't. He was always a decent down-to-earth guy, and I think a lot of us could uh, learn a lot from Lucas. Yeah, he, he was very human, and um, he will be very sorely missed, I'm sure. Now, uh, given that you know the solemn start to this particular um, interview, I think it's, in some ways it passes well into my next question or topic of discussion. You know, it's a tough time for the precious metal space, you know, falling prices, cost inflation. For the juniors, the financing window is closed. Equities are down 50 to 80% in the past few months. And that's coming on top of the, the long slide down that began uh, in August 2020. What's going on, Warren? Well, you know, I, I take a very different approach than uh, all the clowns that are out there saying, oh, gold's going to hit 5,000, gold's going to hit 3,000. And they make these stupid predictions about how you're going to get rich. With gold. And, um, you know, I've been around many decades in the gold market and I've made a lot of money in the gold market. And my general view is I spend virtually zero, uh, zero amount of my time predicting the price of gold. The, the reality is gold, uh, you know, the old story goes, it'll buy you a suit today and it'll buy one ounce of gold to buy you a suit today. It'll one ounce of gold will buy you a suit in 1920. It's a store of value. It's a store of value. So long-term, it'll roughly track the rate of inflation. And so it's a store of value. Are you going to get rich on a store of value? No, you don't. What you do is you get rich doing something else. And then you invest in gold to retain your, uh, retain your wealth. And guess what? Gold going up and up and up, it will because they're printing money like crazy. So gold is on an upward trajectory. It's roughly the, the rate of inflation. And so let's not get too fussed about it. And there, there is that line of growth and you'll be above it sometimes in the gold bulls, you know, the big bull market, everybody get excited, but then it'll just slam down to below the line and then everybody get all de depressed. But there is a trend that cannot be stopped. It's been going on since the days of the Vikings where it just keeps chugging along higher as fiat currencies get printed and they're worth less and less every day. Yet the value for gold stays the same. And where do I use gold in my personal portfolio? I use it as a store of value. I park money in gold knowing that no matter how much uh, Justin Trudeau here in Canada prints money or Biden prints money, that I'll have something that will be worth some money uh, and will not, and my purchasing power with that, those funds will not be diminished. And uh, that's sort of my purpose in gold. And that's my view on gold. And I don't know anybody who could predict the price of gold on a very consistent uh, fashion 
So anybody who does that, I, I really laugh at them. The only prediction I can make, which is absolutely 100% true, gold is going up and will continue to go up little by little every single year. Uh, not, not every single year, but it'll go up. The trend will be, will be your friend. It'll go up. And as far as my ability to predict or anyone's ability to predict what's going to do the next three months, six months, a year, two years, that's really tricky. You'll get an example here. Uh, I was speaking with a senior executive, one of the mining companies the other day, and he was lamenting about the price of gold. And I said, well, were you aware that, um, you know, the Ukrainians, like, remember, we're having tough times here. Who's having the toughest time in the world right now? The Ukrainians. Well, they sold $12 billion worth of their gold. That's not going to help the gold market. So sure, times are tough. But sometimes when times are tough, people who are in a tough spot sell their gold. So there's not always the, the idyllic uh, uh, correlation that some of these gold bugs and specialists try and anticipate because there's so many different moving parts. But again, it comes down to gold just keeps going up in value as the price, as the value of fiat money declines in value. It's a store of wealth. I don't think it's a place to make money. How have I made money in gold? I've made lots of money in gold, but it's getting involved in gold discoveries. And how do I view this recent downturn? I think it's fantastic because right now I have virtually zero exposure to gold. And now we're starting to, you know, so as soon as a little discovery comes along, they'll be strapped for cash. They've just made maybe a one or two discovery holes. They'll be looking for money and I'll kick them a million or $2 million and I'll get in super duper cheap. And then when will I sell? I'll sell when people get overexcited, overly excited about gold or, or when they get bought out by a major. So that's how I make money in gold. And I think it's the only way to make money in gold long term is to, to buy into good quality discoveries and, um, and ride them as long as you can. And if you're trying to predict the price of gold, I think that's a, a loser's way to play the, play the gold market. Thank you. Um, a lot of the, uh, the the junior explorers are trading at you know fifty two week lows or even lower. Um, but even some of the developers, you know, Joe Masunder of Exploration Insights and I in May we ran some numbers on, I think it was about twenty twenty five development stage companies. Average enterprise value back then was about forty dollars per ounce. RBC put a note out recently, according to them, average enterprise value per ounce is now down to twenty dollars. Um, so for even for advanced stage companies, you can pick up some, there's some really, really good values out there at the moment. It sounds like you're a buyer. So are you buying the early stage or advanced stage or, or a mix of all of, it, of everybody? I'm, I'm not doing the grassroots. Uh, I know of a couple situations where they are just, they've just made a discovery. They're not widely known and I'm going to load up on them. And you're exactly right. Like now is the time to buy gold, gold companies. I remember, uh, you know, in the mid '90s, which is you know, a fair amount of time ago, the mid '90s, they were when gold was like 300 bucks an ounce. You're capitalizing gold at $100 an ounce in these companies, right? So to have gold in the current levels at, at $20 an ounce, it's it's pretty uh, pretty cheap. So um, that's where you know you can almost uh, you know you can almost take a shotgun approach here and just buy a whole host of them because long term, again, long term. Uh, just park the money. You're going to do fine long term with them because uh, they're and, and, you know, don't get too excited if nothing moves for a year or maybe two years or, you know, however long it takes. But price of gold is ticking up every single year. 
again, not every single year. My, again, <laughs> long-term gold ticks up. <laughs> Look at the past. The, the future is going to be the, uh, is going to be very much like the past. Gold is going to go up in value over time. So if you're able to buy at super cheap levels, like the $20 level, it's a fantastic time to get into the junior gold market. And you don't, and when you're doing stuff like that, like this is where the early stage guys get really hurt because when uh, people have already discovered gold are trading at those levels, why spend two, cent, two cents drilling for more gold when you can buy gold that's already there? Yeah. And um, it, so it's a really fascinating time we're in right now. And uh, I think you could really can't go too wrong here if you just parked a bit of money with a multi-year horizon. Uh, I think you'd do fine. It seemed, yeah, somebody once told me that uh, an investor's best tool is patience. Yes. Well, my favorite saying in the mining, in, in the, uh, sorry, in the investment business is investing is the transfer of wealth from the impatient to the patient. And tell, I'll tell you that that's, uh, that's true a lot of the time. Although I've run scared on a few investments and I'm really glad I did. <laughs> when I ran out of patience with management, I ran for the hills and the companies collapse. So sometimes it, it's not the case in, in riskier assets, but it definitely, uh, if you've got a good asset uh, and it's getting beaten down, um, it's just, uh, you just got to suck it up and hoover up some more paper. I'll give you an example. One that, that I keep kicking myself for was going into the collapse there in 2020, the COVID collapse or, you know, the March, April type of thing. Next Gen Energy, which has one of the, the most amazing uranium discoveries in the world and one of the most amazing discoveries of any commodity in the world, it collapsed down to 80 cents a share. And not that long afterwards, it traded at eight bucks a share. So you could have like, we're talking a quality, quality name you made 10 times your money on. It's absolutely incredible. And when I talk to people too, I, they say, you know, I, I look at all the effort I put into looking for these new new companies and stuff and, and finding new discoveries. And, you know, if I could just trade one stock, I'll give you an example, Tech Cominco, right? Like, or Tech. Yeah. You know, the number of times it, it round trips between $4 and 40 and 50 bucks, <laughs> it round trips that so many times in a liquid on a liquid name and uh, round tripping that that type of uh, incredible return. It's incredible. It's it's amazing. And I've seen in my lifetime. I'm really sad the company's gone now. It was Inco, International Nickel, right? It would go from two. I remember watching it when I was at university. The stock was at two dollars, two fifty, and then when I was at uh, Deutsche Bank before I started Ross Asset Management, the stock was like in the sixties. I'm going. <laughs> And that thing would routinely, every down cycle in commodities, it would collapse. It would collapse and every up cycle, it would just rock it. So that gives you a flavor for this business. And, you know, it, it's incredible the money you can make, even just catching the copper cycle here with, you know, in the, and tech is a tech is a, you know, I guess one of the last can, remaining Canadian ones is just super cyclical. And it's the returns are fantastic if you call the cycle right. Well, that's it. It's a cyclical business, a key thing to remember. Now, one of the things that uh, we're also starting to see, M&A transactions are starting to happen. You know, Goldfields, Yamana is currently the big one on the table, although that's getting some pushback from investors because it's a, a premium deal. 
many investors want zero premium deals. What, what's your view on things such as all stock deals versus cash deals, zero premium versus premium, mergers of equals, that kind of thing? Okay, well, obviously, if you did a mergers of equal, it's generally a, a very, very weak position to be in if you're the target, right? So you're basically capitulating at a zero premium and just hoping that the new management team could could add a ton of value through synergies and asset optimization, right? So that's not a very, that's a pretty lame, lame position to be in as a target. So am I a fan of them? You know, sometimes, you know, if, if it was the acquiring company, you know, maybe, but, you know, I'm not a super big fan of that. Uh, now, what's, what I see happening, let's take a look at the cash versus paper situation, is um, a number of the big mining companies are just coining it right now. They're making so much money, it's crazy. So they're going, well, what do we need? Well, we don't, like, for us to issue paper, that's not, doesn't make a lot of sense because we're sitting on all this cash. What do we do, issue paper, then buy it back in the market on a, on a buyback program? Why don't we just use cash? And a lot of the majors are just wanting to use cash. So um, the major, and this, is, this comes back to your topic about M&A right now. The majors are making a fantastic amount of money. Commodity prices are fantastic. Take a look at, you know, a lot of them. You know, you could you could complain that they're down a little bit over the last you know, number of months, but they have been making record, record numbers. And um, like, just take a look at tech, how much money tech's been making off their Met Coal business recently, right? Like they're just, they're flush with cash. And mining is a waste is a wasting business. Every day you have fewer resources than you did the day before. So all these majors know they need to to buy quality assets to replace the ones being depleted. But so what's happened is we've had, and you may ask, well, Warren, why haven't hasn't much of it happened the last two years? Well, the reason it hasn't happened is it's been really tough to travel. It's been very tough to get your staff to the places they need to be to do the due diligence to make sure you're not making a stupid purchase, unless you did the due diligence or were very familiar with it before COVID. But um, you need to ship your team to, to the asset. You need to do tons of due diligence. And that has been very, very tough the last two years. Meanwhile, the pressure is building and building and building. And these majors need assets. So the, I, I see the majors will be using cash because they're flush with cash and they don't want to issue any more paper. And the weaker ones, which, which you know, may not be sitting on the big buffer of cash, will use, will use paper. Me as a, as a seller, as a target, I would much rather take cash and then I could redeploy it in the most optimal way that I can. And oftentimes that is not necessarily owning paper in the company that just bought the company I just sold them. So uh, what I would do, even if they issued paper, I'd sell it. So um, I see the majors flush with cash, using cash. They're reluctant to issue paper. The um, more of the mid-tier guys who may not have the big cash reserves yet are in pretty decent financial shape. They'll use paper. And when you see a merger of equals, non-premium deals, that's really a sign of weakness, frankly, in my opinion, that you got a lame duck who just can't even get a stupid premium on a, on a sale. So I, I just like, what's the point? <laughs> okay. Now, I, th I think there's going to potentially be a lot of deals coming out or announced or underway in, in the fall. Um, the companies I'm speaking to, there's a lot of site visits going on. The business development teams are very active. I spoke to Tim Wood, who organizes the Gulf of Americas. 
Jessica Leventhal talks, uh, who organizes the Beaver Creek uh, Precious Metal Summit. They say, they both told me they've got uh, sort of record amounts of business development teams registering to attend the event. So it sounds like that ability to meet up, as you mentioned, uh, Warren, people are really going to go for it and get out there and try and put some deals together. Um, it's not just the precious metals that have suffered in recent months. Copper was trading over $4 a, a pound for about two years. The last few months, it's fallen back down to, let's say, under $3.50 per pound. Uh, yet its outlook still seems to be very attractive with the robust growth in the future from renewables and energy transition um, and a limited copper supply response due to lack of projects in the pipeline. How would you te How temporary? Do you think this pullback to $3.50 a pound will be? And how are you playing the copper space at the moment? Yeah, well, copper, uh, as you know, the, the view, Mr. Copper, is um, some people view the copper being the, the ultimate uh, thermometer of expectations of the economy. So obviously it has a recession built into copper. People are viewing, well, copper, we're you know, with the, the, we have to enter into a recession here to beat back inflation that's been building around the world, right? So I think that's why copper is, is off. Um, and so that is, that will be, uh, that will change once expectations of a downturn or recession will change, right? Now, as far as, you know, copper long-term, uh, there's a lot of people jumping up and down about uh, copper, you know, use three times as much copper in an electric vehicle than you do an internal combustion vehicle, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, not to be, uh, uh, not to rain in everybody's parade here, but the reality is there is not a single electric vehicle that I would put two cents up to buy. I was thinking, you know, the, the Hummer EV might be a pretty cool vehicle to own. So I went then, I saw, just saw one in person. I was not impressed, not impressed. And would I ever own a Tesla? No way. Those cars are not only ugly, but, you know, I, I, I would never buy a sedan because I find they're not that there's not that much utility in them. I'm a more of a, an SUV guy, sort of like a, a Range Rover or an Audi Q8 or something like that, right? So would I buy the Tesla uh, SUV? No. Would I buy the... Uh, that crazy thing uh, Ford's trying to build, the, the Mustang electric vehicle? No, I know somebody buying one. I don't know why. But do I want to buy a first-generation electric vehicle? And, you know, so I don't know. I'm just, I know that I have zero interest in buying any of the electric vehicles out there today. I have only one person I know in my entire group of friends, I don't know why this is the case, but only one of them owns a, owns a Tesla. And he's owned, owns a Tesla because he's a, you know, I don't know, he wants to be a Elon Musk wannabe or something. I don't know, but he, he loves it. He loves it. He says nothing but great things about it. Any Uber I drive in who has a Tesla, I ask, ask him tons and tons of questions about it. And they, they love them. And uh, I look at the display on the screen and it's fantastic. The, uh, the situational awareness they give you on the screen and like there's some amazing innovation in a test. I would never buy though. I'm quite happy with my GMC pickup truck and my Range Rover. Right. But am I uh, going to jump out and buy an electric car? No. So you don't have that big electric car thing happening and sure it's happening in California, but you know, I'm not sure if you saw this recently, but the California is being given the choice. 
by their electrical supplier. Do you guys want electric cars? Do you want air conditioning, right? There's only so much electricity and you guys have shut down all the nuke plants. So like, we don't have the electrical infrastructure to build, to, to produce the power, to power these stupid electric cars is going to use all this copper. So am I a, am I a super permeable on copper and blah, blah, blah. No, like we're going to need copper in the electrical world, but we got to build up our infrastructure. Do I see big capital projects going into infrastructure? No. You just, you look at Tesla, Tesla's got an outrageous market cap, yet there's no infrastructure. Here's another example, perfect example of why this whole electric nonsense is not going to happen nearly as fast as, as all these clowns who are bidding up the price of Tesla. I got a, an email today from my condo corp board. It says, Warren, do you want to put in an electric charger in your garage? And I'm going, well, I'm thinking to myself at that point in the, in the email, I'm going, no. I don't want a stupid electric car. I'll put one in when I get a stupid electric car. Then they go on to say, oh, yeah, the city of Toronto uh, says they can't supply our condo building with any more power. So once we do this initial round of charging stations, there will be no more available. I go, man, I better get one because this shows like my condo building. What happens when out of the, I don't know how many uh, hundreds of parking spots in my condo corp, when they say, well, we can only put 50 chargers in your condo building, then what? Can you imagine you're living in a, 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 it's a nice condo, you're living in a nice condo and you can't charge your stupid electric vehicle in your condo because the city of Toronto can, can, is maxed out and cannot provide the condominium with any more power. Like what electrical revolution are we talking about here? You kind of, uh, sort of answered my sort of next question, and I was going to sort of bring up that you know both Ford and GM have recently announced a number of battery metals related deals for their future EV production. And so you know I was going to ask you how confident and skeptical are you that the metals and mining industry can deliver all of the materials that humanity needs to reach net zero and its decarbonization goals? It sounds like you're very skeptical on that. Well, you know, I, I personally. Have, have a lot of faith in the mining business. You tell me, Warren, we need five new copper mines. I'll, I'll find you five new copper mines. We'll get them going. And um, so we could definitely do that. Mining industry, I have a lot of confidence in. We'll be able to supply the metals. But will the, the clowns who run the, uh, the, the cities and the bureaucratic uh, electric utilities be able to provide the power? That's, that's a bit of a... It seems like we could produce the metals, we could produce the cars, but in the middle, there's this whole group of bureaucrats that don't know what they're doing, and they're just so messed up, and they don't know which way to go with respect to generating power. Take a look at Texas. Take a look at the clowns of the world. Germany, a trillion dollars wasted on solar and wind, and they have... They're no further, their carbon footprint today is bigger than it used to be, and it's going to get way bigger. And what did they do? They shut down their nuclear power plants. They're the biggest dummies in the entire world, and they're supposed to be the leaders. Like, come on, guys. How dumb are you? Do you not do the math? We cannot power the world on wind and solar. We, we need nuclear power. But nobody's figured this one out yet, so, except well, the Chinese are building question and, and while okay, we're on sure Germany they're kind of going backwards I've been reading reports that because of the the gas restrictions they're looking at burning wood this winter to keep warm yeah that's what uh, 
Vladimir Putin said that about six months ago. Well, let the Germans burn wood. And uh, and how's this? How about the clowns in the Netherlands? They're shutting. When and what they're doing to the farmers with the nitrogen? They're they're telling farmers to use less fertilizer. Well, guess what? And and that idiot Trudeau here in Canada is doing the same thing. They're telling our. Can you imagine the government telling farmers how much fertilizer they could use? Trust me on this one. Farmers are pretty smart guys. They will not use one, and they're cheap. They will not use one penny more fertilizer than they need to make the optimal amount of crop for that piece of land. So what happens when the government says, well, you can't use your optimal amount of fertilizer. You need to use 30% less. I've, okay. I've got to ask you, I saw your Twitter that you, you grew up on a farm and things like that. So you'll relate to this. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen this Clarkson's Farm series, Jeremy Clarkson on Amazon? <laughs> if you haven't, uh, you've got to watch it. Because he, uh, he, uh, he, he bought a farm and when his manager retired, he thought, well, I can do this on my own. So that the, the whole series is about his year of doing that. And yep. it goes into everything, all the expenses, all the stress, all the long days, everything. And at the end of it, his accountant comes up and shows him the money he made, and it's about £100. <laughs> so he gets all of that effort, yeah. and that, that's the return. So I hear you on that. Now, um, I'm glad you sort of talk about Germany and, and nuclear power, because my next question is about uranium. The current energy crisis must be good for uranium. Even Germany is considering keeping its nuclear power plants running a bit longer than planned to help cope with that reduced gas supply from Russia. How do you think the uranium narrative is evolving? Well, here's the other thing, right? It's very obvious to me. Nuclear power is the only answer for, you know, grid scale, baseload power. If Germany wants to keep their auto plants running and keep their industrial heartland going, you need good, solid power. And if you don't want to burn coal, nuclear is the only other option because around the world, we've pretty much dammed up every single major river. I think there's like a, the other day I looked at a river, there's like a river in Tanzania we haven't dammed up yet. Like it's, so nuclear power, small, and with respect to the important thing about nuclear power is the economics of it. And it's the, few, the cost of the fuel, which is the uranium that, you know, uh, you know, guys like NextGen and Chemical will be producing, or NextGen will be producing and Chemical currently produces, is it represents single digit percentages of the overall cost of the electricity. The major cost is a capital cost. So if you attack that through modularity, and that's what they're doing with the small modular reactors. So if you need a 1.2 gigawatt power plant, you'll get, you just get four 300 megawatts power plants or uh, modular reactors and you, you put them in series, right? So we need to bring down the cost of that long-term and that'll really, that, that'll make a lot of this stuff uncompetitive. If we get if we get a good modular design that everybody buys into, let's say a three or 400 megawatt reactor, like I don't think we'll build another stupid solar farm uh, <clears throat> because it'll be, and these, these modular reactors, they're, at least some of them I've seen, they're, um, they're molten salt, which means the fuel is already in liquid form, so you can't have a meltdown. And they're fail-safe, so if the power, it requires power to the reactor to keep the process going, and if that power fails, the process stops. And if the fuel's already melted down, you're not going to have a meltdown. So 
I think the important thing for nuclear for mankind is small modular fail-safe reactors. And you just, how many do you need? You want to like, and, and once, once you standardize the parts, you know what it's like, you're building a house, you want a house using a standard sink or do you want a custom sink? Big difference in price. And if you can jam down the, the, uh, the costs of the capital costs on nuclear power plants, there, there'll be nothing that could beat it in terms of generating electricity quietly, cleanly, safely. And right now, nuclear power, despite all the hype from idiots like Greenpeace, you know, they, they have, they're safer than hydropower. Like fewer people have been killed with nuclear power in the last half century than with hydro. And hydro, occasionally you get a dam breaking and wipes out a couple of villages downstream, right? And hundreds and hundreds of people will die. But um, I'm really excited about this new, the new generation reactors that are modular fail safe. That is our future. You do the math. We don't have enough land mass for solar. Solar won't work in countries like, like even here, Canada, where I live. Uh, you know, some one area I live in the wintertime, it's like cloudy almost every day. So you're not going to do that. And wind, you know, we all saw what happened in, in the UK and in Texas when wind doesn't blow. It's pretty serious. You need consistent everyday baseload. And I think nothing could be more consistent than a modular fail-safe reactor. Okay, and thank so. you, Juan. Now, so final question, final couple of minutes. Um, we talked about tech um, earlier in this uh, call. Don Lindsay of Tech has just announced his retirement and what has been a, a well-worked-out transition plan over the last couple of years at, uh, at the company. How important is that to have a transition plan for an investor such as yourself? And to what extent do you think this is you know, an overhang on a company like Barrick Gold, where it's been quite opaque about what's going to happen when the tour de force Mark Bristow finally decides he wants to spend more time tending his garden. Yeah, well, I've, I've heard the, about the transition for Don Lindsay for quite some time. I used to work with Don when I was at Wood Gundy, uh, the investment banking arm of uh, CIBC, you know, in the early 90s. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think there's it's time for a change at tech. Um, the, biggest, the biggest issue with tech is they're sort of, they don't know where they want to go with respect to their Met Coal business, right? It generates a massive amount of cash for them, but they want to be a do-gooder esg right? Which means, oh, coal is bad, but most people don't know the difference between metallurgical coal and thermal coal, right? So even though they produce metallurgical coal and there's no real substitute to it, sure, you know, people, some, some scientists say, well, theoretically, you can replace it with hydrogen, but then you need to make sure the hydrogen gets produced in a green fashion, blah, blah, blah. But Guess what? Metcoal is going to be around for the next several decades. You need it to build your Teslas. You need it to build the towers for your wind farms. You need it to for the brackets for your solar. Okay, so you need Metcoal. And I don't know if tech knows what they're going to do with their Metcoal assets. And uh, everybody's trying to pander to these ES, these big funds in the U.S. who are demanding, you know, ESG, ESG, ESG. So what, what good does spinning off your coal assets so somebody else runs them? Is that helping the world or you, you, you get my drift, right? That That's the biggest conundrum tech has to deal with. I hope uh, the new leader uh, perhaps has a bit more courage, um, you know, Jonathan Price, that he uh, he steps up and says, listen, the world will need Met Coal in the next 20 years. We will produce high quality Met Coal for those okay. 20 years. I've got to cut it off there because Zoom's going to yep. kick us out in a moment. Uh, Warren Erring, President and Chief Investment Officer of Rosso Asset Management. 